I think that's good enough. We can just go home. Amen. It's good. Loved hearing about your mission work in Uganda. Uh, at our church, we have uh, mission work going on in Kenya. We have a pastor school there. And uh, I've been over there once. And I'm thankful to God that I got back home. <laughs> it was really good, though. It was an eye-opening experience. And uh, we've had a ministry over there for a long time now at our church. Uh, Bennard and his his mission work with the orphanage, they have about 800 children, and we have a school over there that we meet with every year. COVID messed it up a couple of years, but, and uh, we do the same thing, training pastors, uh, local pastors in that area, and uh, we do it in, in India too. Uh, I'd love to talk to you more about your work and what you're doing. Good to hear that. Well, also, uh, today is going to be a little different. I'm going to be sharing and uh, picking up on a study we did a few weeks back on the topic of the church. And I like to readdress some of those things uh, this afternoon. So what I'd like you to do is open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy, first of all, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll begin there. There's a couple of passages I'm going to read in 1 Timothy, and then also we're going to turn over to 2 Timothy and read from there. But First and 2 Timothy and Titus are what are known as the pastoral epistles. They are the letters written to the pastors Specifically, Timothy being the pastor at the church at Ephesus, and then Titus, who was on the little Isle of Crete, and he was to establish elders there and to be the, past, the pastor and the lead pastor there. These letters are given to the church for a very specific reason, and the primary reason is so that you and I, as believers and leaders in the church, would know how to conduct ourselves in the house of God. God did not leave us without information. He did not leave us without instruction. He gave very specific details as to how he expects his church to operate. And that is clearly based upon what we know from the rest of Scripture, like in the book of Acts, chapter 20, when Paul was talking to the elders at Ephesus, he says that you are elders or overseers of the church that Jesus has purchased with his own blood. It's his church. It's not ours. This is his people. And uh, we are to do it according to his will and his word. So to begin with, let me read what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I'll read verse uh, 14 and uh, just a couple of verses there. And the word of God says, These things I write to you, though I may come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of of the truth. Look down to chapter 4 for a moment, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith and give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Now what I'd like you to turn to is in the second letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. This would be the last chapter penned by the Apostle Paul. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and following. And the Word of God says, as Paul concludes his words to Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince. Rebuke exhort with all long-suffering and teaching for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine 
But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Whenever I was in fifth grade, I had a geography teacher by the name of Mr. Sharp. I never have forgotten him. He was an older man who seemed to have a lot of wisdom, very little humor that I remember. But one of the things that struck me that I've since learned about him was he was a sailor on the USS Indianapolis. And many of you know the story of the USS Indianapolis. It had been set on a secret mission with radio silence to deliver the bomb and the components of the bomb so that they could bomb Hiroshima. And it delivered its mission, it accomplished its goal, but on its way back on uh, July 30th, 1945, it was torpedoed by a Japanese sub. 195 men were on board that ship, and the ship sank in 12 minutes. 300 of those sailors went down with the ship. 890 were left to struggle to stay stay afloat and to stay alive. With what little craft they had, they were exposed to exposure, dehydration, saltwater poisoning, and sharks. One of the most horrifying events of that situation was that as the men would gather in circles together, the sharks would come by at different times of the day and pick them off. By the time they were spotted, nearly four days later, there were only 319 surviving men. The rest of them drowned or eaten by sharks. The tragedy of that was is that there was radio silence, so they did not know. They didn't know that the ship had been attacked. They didn't know that it was in distress. They didn't know that it had sank. And the tragedy is, is that many men died because of radio silence. Now, I'm definitely one that believes they needed to have that radio silence. But at the same time, the point is, had there been an opportunity to get word out, many other men would have survived that horrific event of the USS Indianapolis. What I'm sharing that with you for today is to say to you that too often today, men and women are dying And going to hell because the church is silent. It's not so much what the church is saying. It's what the church isn't saying. Pastors, sadly, and I have to say this, and I'm one of them, so I can can speak to my own group. Pastors in America are cowards. They're too often concerned about their paycheck. They're too often concerned about their status. They're climbing the ranks of ecclesiastical, clerical preeminence. And so they don't speak out. They don't speak out and deliver the truth, the life-saving truth. Instead, there is compromise, there's concession, and there's silence. Silence. 
where these men should be speaking clearly from the pulpits and declaring the Word of God in such a clear way that there would be no ambiguity as to what the church believes. Nowadays, many, nowadays, many people are wondering exactly what do we believe? What do we hold to? What are we committed to any longer? Or are we even committed to anything at all? We're more concerned about making sure we get the crowd than that we deliver the truth. And as I read the passages to you earlier, my point from reading those passages was to illustrate to you in just three passages how important it is to make sure that the church holds to and teaches and proclaims the truth. Not just any truth, but the truth of the living God, the word of the living God. We don't need, near, we don't need to hear any more political pundits. We don't need any more talking hairdos. We need to hear from the word of the living God. The church needs men to stand in the pulpits of America and to preach and teach the word of God. One of the last things that really has come to my attention in the last couple of years is how complacent, apathetic, and silent the church is on the murder of babies. With the passing of Roe v. Wade, an event that most of us would be willing to admit that we never thought would happen. All of us were surprised whenever that came down. Even, it was, even when it was just leaked, we were surprised. But many men of the Big Eva, they call it, the evangelical community, have been completely silent. Why would you be silent whenever you have an opportunity now to express to the world where you stand on this issue? Why you believe that abortion is wrong? Why you believe that it is murder from conception? And to add to that, there are churches, large churches in America, that have compromised on the LGBTQ community issues. They brought men and women in that are living those kind of lifestyles, allowing them to be members and to teach in their churches, and these are considered conservative churches, at least by name. The bigger issues that we face today is not even a lot of the ills that we're living in in our society, and I do believe that they will get worse in our culture because, as MacArthur correctly states, our country is under the wrath of God and the judgment of God, and there is no turning it back. It is under judgment. But that doesn't mean that the people of God and the ministers of God's word should be quiet. This is the time we should be speaking out the loudest. We should be the Isaiahs and the Jeremiahs and the Amos and the Hezekiahs. We should be the men like Zechariah, John the Baptist. We should be speaking clearly the truth in the context of a world literally that does not understand truth. And I'll have to say this, and I think you'll agree with me, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the only, you could call it institution, the only body that has the truth. That's it. The universities don't have the truth. Frankly and sadly, many of the seminaries don't have the truth anymore. A lot of the Bible colleges have compromised long ago. So where are you going to go for the truth? You're going to go down to the next church that does the bebop worship and has the blue lights and the fog machines? Is that where you're going to go? Where they have the sermonettes for Christianettes, 20-minute sermons that supposedly are practical but not theological? Is that where you're going to go? 
Or are you going to go somewhere where the word of God is proclaimed and heralded forth without compromise, verse by verse, word for word, to make sure that God is honored in everything that we say and do? And whenever it comes to the church, more and more pastors are looking outside of the Bible on how to run the church. They're looking to philosophy and management skills and the CEOs of businesses and the successful entrepreneurs of our culture. And they're saying, well, if you want to get a crowd and you want to have a group of people and you want to be successful, this is how you do it. And so what we've done is we've compromised on these things and we brought those things into the church. We literally believe, like Charles Haddon Spurgeon said many years ago, that we need to entertain the people to get them to come. And once you entertain, and that's your goal to entertain, ultimately what you end up with is a building full of goats and not sheep. There's much I could say on this subject, but I want to try to just finish up some things I had in my mind the last time we discussed this. So I want to take you to a couple of verses to remind you of. One of them is in Matthew 16. We'll just start there again and go back to a couple of other texts. But in Matthew 16, you have the words of Jesus given to Peter and his disciples. They were asking, or rather, they were answering the question that Jesus had proposed, who do men say that I am? And Jesus answers the question. He begins to tell them after Peter responds in verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says this word in verse 17, Matthew 16, 17, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Now we need to stop there just for a moment and realize that this revelation is not man centered. It is not gained because Peter has better schooling. It is given by the sovereign purposes of God to Peter. It is a revelation of God to Peter of who Christ is. This is not something you can work up, you can make happen. This is the work of God. So he says in verse 18, he says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The Catholic Church got that wrong whenever they believed that what was meant by that is that the church would be built on Peter and his apostolic succession. But just a simple look at the original language will tell you that that is not what God had in mind. That's not what Christ was saying. He says in verse 18 that you are Peter. That's the word petros. It means a little pebble, a little stone that you would see on the side of the road. But he says on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. The word Petra refers to a rock bed foundation. And the point is, is that he says you're Peter. You're the small, insignificant little petal, but what you said is what I will build my church on. That I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And notice in verse 18, he says, I will build my church. Not Peter, not the apostles, not church government, not ecclesiastical bodies, not your methodologies or your means, not your light or your shows or your music. Not even your preaching. But Christ said he would build his church. It is his responsibility, not ours, to build his church. He's the one calling. He's the one electing. He's the one regenerating. All we have to do is, as MacArthur on one occasion said, be faithful to deliver the meal. That's what we're responsible to do. 
So he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. No matter what hell and the devil and his forces throw at the church, you can't stop it. It doesn't matter how much the church is persecuted. It doesn't matter how many times there are threats against it. You cannot stop the advancement of the church of Christ. He says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. His point there is that I will give you the keys to the kingdom, which that's the gospel. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you do not permit on earth will not be permitted in heaven. And whatever you lose, that is, whatever you do permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. In other words, it's a very simple allusion to the reality that I will give you the authoritative truth that you will be able to tell the church and the world what is right, what is wrong, what is permitted, what is not permitted, what I allow and what I don't allow. And you are the only one, the church, you are the only one that has the keys that open the door to heaven. You're it. Nobody else has it. No other religion, no other group, no other prophet, only the church. Something I was told a while back was that over the years, the pastors, the clergy, have committed clergy malpractice. Much like what happens with the medical community, you can do something wrong or illegal and you can actually commit medical malpractice and you can get yourself in a whole lot of trouble. The same is true for the clergy. And today, sadly, there are many, many pastors who have committed clergy malpractice. They have misinformed and misled the church. They have not communicated the truth clearly. Therefore, because the truth is not heralded and it's not held out and it has not been the foundation of the local bodies, they are susceptible to the attacks of the enemy. You and I, in order to be the kind of church God wants us to be, must be a church committed to the foundation given to us in the word of God, and that is the truth. The truth. We are to hold to it, believe it, teach it, preach it. We are not to compromise on it. We are to give it no matter how it feels, no matter how comfortable it makes you or uncomfortable. We are to make sure that we herald forth what God has given to us in his word. He is the Lord of his church and we are to obey him. Second Timothy 4.2 says you are to preach the word. That's a very clear imperative in the New Testament. We are not to preach our opinions, our stories, our ideas, our philosophies, we are to preach the word of God. Today, it seems like more and more I hear this, that you know, if you preach the Bible verse by verse, expositionally, that's boring. It's boring for goats. It's not boring for the sheep. The sheep love the word. They want to devour the word. And what better to have than a man of God who's willing to stand in the pulpit and expound not just passages in general but get down to the very words of the text that are the very words of the living God if we believe this Bible is the inspired words of God then we are to preach every word of it and the Bible says that we are to preach the word 
This has been a monumental failure in the last 20 to 30 years of the church. And we're reaping the fruit of many years of compromise on this very area. So more than ever, could I encourage you to understand that whenever the church is to meet together and to assemble together, that one of the primary things the church is to be responsible to do is to preach the word. Preach the word. I find it rather uh, interesting and sometimes a little entertaining of how we do our best in churches nowadays to try to make the word unoffensive. You know, we, we try to sugarcoat it. Uh, nowadays, there's this whole idea of making sure you get rid of the pulpit because that's too authoritative. So more and more, you see the plexiglass pulpit pulled into place, or not even that. Sometimes there's a little stool there with a little water bottle, and everything's got to look casual and comfortable. You've got to get the idea that we're not here to threaten you. We're not here to give you any kind of authoritative statement to make you feel uncomfortable. But folks, listen, let's just be honest for a moment. If we read the Bible like we should, and we listen to the Scripture like we should, if you understand what God is saying, you are going to be uncomfortable. And if you're not, you're not being honest with yourself. You're not dealing with the sin that is in your life because literally the Bible will beat you from pillar to post if you allow it in your life. We just started the book of James today in our church going through it verse by verse and I told our church this morning that you're going to find yourself dealing with a lot of sin in your life. I said, you think you might be sanctified now. You're going to find out what sanctification is as we work our way through this book verse by verse. And the point is, is that we need to understand that the primary means of God sanctifying his church is through the exposition of his word. The spirit of God attends to the preaching and the proclamation and the teaching and the exposition of the word of God. So with that said, let's just move a little further and understand a couple of purposes of the church. And this is just by review. The first and ultimate purpose of the church, overarching, is the glory of God. That's why the church exists. Doesn't matter where it is, doesn't matter how big it is, how small it is, the church is for the purpose of glorifying God. The entire work of God from eternity past where he has elected a body to be his bride and has in time regenerated those people and brought them to, to himself, given them his Holy Spirit, is for the purpose of making them a means by which God is praised, heralded as trophies of grace. Trophies of grace. The second point we brought out is that the church's primary purpose is not only to glorify God, but also to edify the saints, to edify the saints. I grew up in an era where that was not the priority. The priority was that whenever you met together for church, it was for the evangelization of the saints. In other words, you all came together in every sermon. It didn't matter what passage it was. It was always about getting people to respond to the message and to come down front and get saved. Most of the people that were there every Sunday were already saved. But they were told over and over again, you need to get saved. And there would be long periods of hymns of just as I am over and over and over again until finally somebody got frustrated enough to come down and shut down the service. Been in that, done that, seen that. And there was very little instruction on the Sunday morning hour to the saints 
Edification was out the door. That was given to the Sunday school arm of the church, where in most cases you had unprepared, ill-trained people handling the Word of God, teaching the church the doctrines of the Bible. Whereas the man who was supposed to be in the pulpit, who should have had some type of training, was up there evangelizing the people who were already saved. I can't tell you how many times I've been asked this question whenever we would have our services and I have some friends and some family members down in Florida and they would ask me, well, how did your church service go? How many people came down front and got saved? I said, nobody got saved. Really? That must mean that God's not in your church. And the goal was is that your service and the success of your service was determined on how many came front, came down front, signed the card, made the profession of faith, and got baptized. But yet the Bible doesn't teach that's the way the church is to meet. The church is to meet together for the edification of the saints and to disperse for the evangelization of the lost. In other words, our responsibility here today is to be trained in the Word of God so that when we go out, Wherever we go, which is the mission field God has given to all of us, then we are to evangelize the hundreds and thousands of sinners all around us. They're everywhere. My brother read earlier from Ephesians 4 that God had given to the church apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry. That is really the sum total of the church's ministry when it meets together. The uh, third point would be, and obviously flowing right out of this, would not only be the fact that we should exalt God and glorify Him and secondly edify the saints, but when we do leave this place, the responsibility of our church would be to evangelize the lost. And you just have to ask yourself a couple of questions, and this will help clarify where you are on that. When's the last time you've talked to someone about the gospel? You would be surprised as to how quiet the church is about this very very few people talk to people about the gospel very few talk about the u.s indianapolis radio silence there are people dying everywhere and are going into an eternal hell and we're not saying anything we're not even talking about it it's as if it doesn't even happen i really wonder if we even believe it do we even believe that there is a hell? I mean, do you believe that there's people burning in hell right now? Or is that one of those doctrines that is old now and just something we really shouldn't talk about much? I mean, based upon what I read in Scripture, there are millions of people burning in hell right now. As we meet together in this beautiful building, air-conditioned as it is, there are millions of people who are in hell right now burning, and God has placed them there and has no regrets and no intention of ever removing them from that place. Do you believe that? That's what the Bible teaches. You have family members that are very, very close to hell itself. And so you and I need to be about doing the business of what God's called us to do. As it says in Matthew 28, we ought to be about making disciples of all the ethnos, all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Listen, if the church would get busy about doing what the church has called it to do, it wouldn't have time for all the nonsense 
that is in most of the churches today. Well, what's the plan for the church? There's the purpose of the church. The purpose is exaltation of God, edification of the saints, evangelization of the lost. The plan for the church is really, really simple. God has not made it complicated. Boy, we have complicated it. We have made it all kinds of complicated, but it's not complicated at all. One of the things I appreciate about this church and our church is that it's very simple. I tell people whenever you come to our church, it's like going to a restaurant. It's a meat and three vegetables. You get a sermon and three hymns. That's it. That's all you get. We're not responsible to take care of your kids. We're not responsible to train your children. We're not responsible to make sure you have youth activities and you go to the mountains and go do this and go do that. That's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to exalt God, to edify the saints, and to evangelize the lost. That's what God told us to do. We spend untold amounts of money, millions of dollars are spent in waste of entertaining the saints. And that's sad. And we get off track. We get off track. Well, what is the first things that we should do? One of the first things, and this is going to be obvious to you, and this is preaching to the choir because you're here. The first and most obvious part of the plan for the church is regular weekly worship. Regular weekly worship. Not like some seem to think it is, that it's regular kind of monthly worship. But it's regular weekly worship. The church met on the Lord's Day all the time. In fact, if we really really want to be biblical, we need to meet every night, every day. Because they met from house to house all the time, right? But specifically, whenever the church met corporately, it met weekly on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. And one of the primary reasons for that was to worship. You remember uh, what John 4.23 says, But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, our worship must be what comes from our heart. It must be empowered from the spirit of God and it must be enveloped with, controlled by the truth. We are called in Philippians 3.3, one of the best definitions of a believer in any of the Bible text. Philippians 3.3, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. That's a believer. Best definition in all of the Bible, right there, for the believer. But we are to have regular, regular, weekly worship. The text found over in Hebrews, which was just read earlier in our scripture reading in chapter 10. One of the most important verses about our coming together to worship, it says in chapter 10, verse 25, that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some or the habit of some. But what many people miss is, is that that's not the commandment. That's not a commandment. The commandment is in the previous verse, and it's the verb that says, consider one another to promote good works. And then the rest of the text, verse 25, are participles, which modify the main verb. And the participles are not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. 
In other words, the way you are considering one another is by assembling together. So whenever you and I lay out, we are being as selfish as we possibly can be, and we're not doing what God has called us to do with the church. It isn't about just coming and occupying a pew or being present in a meeting. It's about considering one another and promoting good works in one another by assembling together. And see, the thing is, I think too sadly, we've learned this in the COVID years. It was an eye-opener. I think we learned a lot of things about the church that we didn't know till COVID hit. And then all of a sudden, we found out that there were a lot of people who thought that church was not essential. They didn't count it as important. They could, quote, live stream. You can't live stream communion. And you can't live stream Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. That's not possible. And even though there's times and there's a place for that, yes, whenever you're sick and you're not able to be here, or perhaps maybe you're out of town, but ultimately, you and I are responsible before God to obey the commandment to consider one another, and by doing that, we assemble together. We come together for that purpose. And I remember talking just recently to someone. They were trying to find a local church to attend. So they were asking a lot of questions about our church, which is fine. I'm perfectly fine for that, and I would expect that, encourage that. But they, uh, they said this to me. They said, well, I like, I like live stream church. <laughs> and I just, I, I, I just said, well, God doesn't. He doesn't like it. You can't do the New Testament one another's with live stream church. And let's be all honest. When we're all kicked back in our recliner watching live stream church with our popcorn and whatever else we're eating at the time, you don't stay alert. You pass out. I know from personal experience. I've been home at times because I was sick or whatever and had to live stream church. It's not the same thing. Like MacArthur says, I don't like, I don't like flat screen preachers. And I agree with that. You can't, you can't be involved in a local assembly and be influenced by the power of the Holy Spirit in the context of a live stream church. So could I encourage you to reconsider, if you haven't already, the importance of the assembly of God's people together? In other words, we will do whatever we possibly can to make sure that we can go to work on Monday. But when Sunday morning comes, oh, I'm not feeling too good. Oh, I didn't sleep that well. Oh, the children are upset. Monday morning come, got to go. Hate it for you. See you later. I think we see where our heart is, don't we? We see where our heart is. Here's another thing. Not only are we to be committed to regularly week, weekly worship, but also this is going to be very, very practical to us. A church should be committed to hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs in its worship. Now, I'm not necessarily making any, any kind of division between, quote, contemporary, non-contemporary. I'm not talking about that. What I am talking about is the Bible's very, very clear that we are to have hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs. It even says in Ephesians 5.18 that we're not to be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, and we are to speak to one another. And that's the, uh, the antiphony back and forth of like a choir singing to another choir. 
We are speaking or singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord. That's what is referring to the corporate worship through song. I'm often saddened by what I see going on in some of the churches where they've literally ditched the hymns altogether. And like what one pastor said, the hymns are our songs. They're the church's songs. They're the ones that have come down through the years and the traditions through the years. And they're usually very, at least the the older ones are and some of the newer ones, but they're very based in scripture and doctrinally sound. And too often we ditch them for the songs that make us feel good. That make us feel good. So we're to have hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. And thankfully, even this year, I know that uh, I think uh, the Master Seminary is coming out with a Psalter that's going to give the churches a lot of opportunity to sing the psalms now and put them to music. Some guys do better at that than others, you know. Another one, something we just practiced here this morning, the public reading of Scripture. Public reading of Scripture. That is something that is missing in much of the church, but thankfully there's a desire for that to be reintroduced into to worship and you may think well what's so great about that i mean i can read the scripture myself i mean i can do that myself why do i need someone to stand up in the church and to read it to me and in what way is that worship well it's worship because god told you to do it that's number one and number two what better thing to hear when you come together as God's people than to hear God's word. 1 Timothy 4.13 says, Till I come, give your attention to reading, that's a Greek word for public reading, exhortation and doctrine. In other words, I want you to read the text to the church. Doctrine, I want you to, I want you to teach the text to the church. Exhortation, I want you to apply the text to the church. Churches should be involved in reading the text to the church. Reading it. They did that. If you remember back in Nehemiah's day, in Nehemiah 8, 2 and following, it says, So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear it with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from the morning to the midday. You think we read long. From the very morning to the midday, they read the Old Testament text. Then it says, then he read, uh, excuse me, it goes on and says, before the men and the women and those who could understand that the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra and the, the scribe stood on a platform of wood. There's your first pulpit, which they had made for that very purpose to elevate him up so people could see him as he read the scripture. Then Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord there with their faces to the ground. Also a number of the men and the Levites helped the people to understand the law, so they're teaching it now, explaining it. And the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. That's really a definition of expository preaching, what we do with the text. 
Another thing, and I'm going to be finishing up here shortly, but a couple of other important parts that God has planned for the church. This is going to sound totally countercultural, but hang on with me for a moment and follow with me. The church was meant, as it gathers together to worship, to be integrated and not segregated. Now you say, what in the world are you talking about, Pastor? Well, what I'm talking about is, whenever we come together, we come together as families. And we worship God not as the adults here, the senior adults there, and the youth over there, and the children back in their little church. We come together as a whole to worship. As a whole body. Listen to me carefully. There's nothing greater for your little children to see than the adults in the family worshiping God. We have adopted the public school mentality that whenever we come to worship, we've got to separate everybody. So we've got to get the kids over here, the young kids over there, the youth over here, the young adults over here, the senior adults over there, because nobody can understand anything unless you're in, the, in that group. Can I tell you something? This is going to be profound. That's not true. It's just not true. I can't tell you how many times I've had six-year-old children come up to me after I've taught on the doctrine of propitiation and tell me how much they really appreciated that, that they now understood what Jesus did on the cross. You know, I think it's time to get past the giraffe hanging out of Noah's Ark, right? We need to get a little deeper with our kids. We, don't, we assume they can't grab it. We assume they can't get it. Even in our own culture, we have this whole thing called adolescence, which is the teenage years. And they call it the awkward adolescent years, where all of a sudden the teenagers don't know what they're doing and where they're going and have no clue about anything, according to what they tell us. But in the Bible, that wasn't like that. You were a child and you were an adult. You went from a child to an adult. At 12 years old, you had your bar mitzvah, you became a man. None of this in the middle whatever things going on where we don't know what in the world you're about. And they were in the synagogue being taught the law of God from a child all the way up. We've lost that. We've lost that. The Bible's very clear that whenever the people of God came together, they came together as a whole. And they worshiped. In Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 11 it says, And when all the Israel, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God... In a place which he chooses, you shall read the law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women, and the little ones. And the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and to carefully observe all the words of the law, and that their children who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross over Jordan to possess. In other words, God said to Israel, whenever you come together to hear the word of God and the law read and explained, bring everyone together, even the little ones. They learn, listen, they're not going to know everything that they hear, but they're going to learn more than you realize. And they're going to be affected by the consistent pattern that they see of adults worshiping God. Because they're going to see that that is important to you. 
Instead of being dragged outside the local body into a room where you play games all day. And maybe have one Bible verse to memorize. I have personally experienced this. And I have to tell you right at first, I came out of a background that was segregated. I did. In other words, my, my church history, as far as a pastor is concerned, I was kind of shoved into this. I didn't know any better. I thought, well, this is the way you do it. You know, you had children's church. You had little toddler church. You had everything else. And you had youth. And they did their thing. And then you had church. And usually the adults would go in there and have their thing. But in the last 10 years at the church I'm at, I have seen the impact of integrated worship on the families in our church. I've seen little children, small children, grappling with the things of God, overwhelmed with the, the importance of the Word of God and the worship of God's people. It's absolutely astounding to watch. Now, I'm not saying that that is the only thing that needs to happen. There also needs to be the involvement of the family, the parents and the children, the teaching at home, all that has to happen there, it needs to be reinforced and supported and instructed and clarified. When you leave a church body and go home, are you talking about what the hamburger is going to taste like? Or are you talking about the sermon or the lesson you learned from the Word of God? Is that what's important to you? Or is it the next meal to fill your gut? So we ought to be filling our minds and our heart with these things and making sure that we have our families together and that we worship together as a whole, it used to be that way. You do realize this is not rather, this is rather a new approach in church in the last hundred years or so. This is not something that was always historic in the church. Whenever you met together, you met together as a family. And I also want to add this. I understand that there's, there are broken families. In fact, 50%, at least the last statistic was this, that over 50% of the families are broken families and so they come from a mixed background and there's there's difficulties with that that make it difficult to actually lead a family there are struggles there and they're real but whenever you have like a single mother who comes in with her children and she wants to come and worship what do you do you usher her children off to a room and leave the mother in there to worship by herself no what you do is you have families come alongside of her and you encourage her. You have a responsibility before God to do that. We have lost that in the church. We've lost it. If we could get back to that, we might see a lot better result. And also you could say this, that as far as a lot of the programs the church has instituted, and you look at the fruit of it in the last 20 years, really? The majority of the young people are leaving the church when they get out of high school? The majority of them are. But we've got the programs. We've got the youth ministries. We've got the fun and the games. I think we need to go back to a very basic approach to our worship. Integrated, not segregated. Let me hammer a little harder on this, okay? Titus chapter 2, verse 3 and following talks about the responsibility of older men Younger men, older women, and younger women. This is a direct result of segregation that we have this problem where the older women do not interact with the younger women. And it is a direct result, this segregation is a direct uh, fruit, rather, excuse me, the segregation, its fruit is that the older men don't interact with the younger men. 
We keep them separate. Why in the world would you expect there to be any influence at all on the younger people when we keep all the older people away from them? Right? But the Bible's clear. Like, for instance, just to give you an illustration, in chapter 2, verse 3 of Titus, it says, The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not giving them much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, and homemakers, to be obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. When have you ever seen that done? Seriously. Why? Because we don't do it. We have classes separated from one another. The young women who are raising up children and need help and instruction in motherhood and loving their husbands, they're not taught anything because the older people are gathering together going down to their mountain trips. There's no connection. We've segregated the biblical pattern. We've eliminated one of the primary means that God has chosen to use in his church to instruct his church. Well, I have much more I could say about that, but I ran out of notes, so let's move on. We have one more thing I'd like to add to this, and that is just a simple reminder of the biblical pattern given to us in the Bible. Now, you can turn to this if you'd like to, and I'm going to finish up with just a couple of statements here. And this is in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 and verse 40 and following. It says this, and you're familiar with this, I mean, Peter was preaching this powerful sermon on the day of Pentecost. He had a huge audience. And in chapter 2, verse 40, it says, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. So immediately the church grew tremendously. 3,000 souls were added to the church by salvation. And it says this in verse 42, this is what they committed themselves to immediately. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. That was the church service. The apostles' doctrine that they continued in steadfastly. And they continued also in fellowship, which is koinonia, which is the use of the one another's of the New Testament. That's not pink lemonade and sugar cookies that's you and I getting involved in one another's life and having true biblical fellowship and then also he says the breaking of bread which included the the feast among the believers there where they would eat a meal together but also they would celebrate the Lord's Supper and then prayers they were just as committed to prayers as they were the apostles doctrine just as committed to fellowship as they were the apostles doctrine and just as committed to the breaking of bread as the apostles doctrine the point is they gave themselves over to these things and it says in verse 43 then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles now all who believed were together and had all things in common they sold their possessions and their goods and divided them among all as anyone who had a need a total selfless congregation who loved one another and were willing to give everything they had so that they can meet the needs of another. They continued daily, it says, in one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. One day a week wasn't enough for them. They met all the time. All the time. So they came for the apostles' doctrine. They came for the purpose of the breaking of bread and fellowship. And also, they came for prayer together. It also tells us, as a result of that, later on in chapter 3 and following, that they they spread out, they scattered out 
and evangelized. There's your pattern of the New Testament church. But there's one last thing I would want to close with, and that is something that is most often not talked about anymore because people say, well, that's what preachers always talk about, and that's giving. Giving to the local assembly. That is a pattern in the New Testament. That is expected in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1 and 2, it says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, you also must do. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there may be no collections when I come. And all Paul is saying is that you should be giving regularly to the local assembly, so much so that whenever I come, we don't need to take a special offering. That's what he's talking about. Now I'm going to say something now that's going to surprise many of you. Tithing is not biblical. You say, thank God, I don't have to tithe anymore. Oh, no, no, hold on, hold on. If you were to tithe biblically in the Old Testament, a tithe means a tenth. I have heard this my whole life, where pastors get up and say, you know, you need to commit to give your tithe. Give your 10%. If you don't do that, you're not obeying God. You're stealing from the storehouse. How many times have you heard that? Well, and they always go to Malachi, the Old Testament prophet. You know why they go there? Because you can't go to the New Testament and find it. It's not in it. It's not there. But if you're going to be biblical about it, and you're going to be really an Old Testament tither, you have to give not 10%, you have to give 23 and a third percent. Because there were two tithes required, plus there was one every three years, which made up for a total of 20 and a third percent. So for all of those who want to tithe, if you're going to do that, we would say thank you, please do. But you need to give 23%. But to go a little further with that, the tithe was not for the church. It was for the temple and the the, uh, Levite priesthood. It basically was a means of supporting the priest who could not live outside of that. When you come to the New Testament, there's literally nothing said to the New Testament church about tithing. Now, there's a comment that Jesus makes to the Pharisees about their tithing of tea leaves and mints and things like that, correcting their hypocrisy. But whenever it comes to the New Testament church, not one apostle, not one teacher, not one verse gives any instruction to the church to tithe. Even the apostle Paul, who would have been schooled very well in the Old Testament tithe, Whenever he's given opportunity to speak on the topic of the tithe, he never brings it up. In chapter 1, or rather chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, when he talks to the church about giving, he doesn't say tithe. He says, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. In other words, as God prospers you, you are to give to the local assembly. Now this is where it hurts. All right, a lot of people think, well, tithing, I need to tithe. Well, okay. You know, you can tithe and not be a biblical giver. That's right. You can tithe and not be a biblical giver. Not only because the Bible doesn't teach it for the New Testament church, but because also in chapter 8 and chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, it talks about the biblical pattern of giving. And listen to what it teaches. It says that you and I, if we're going to be a biblical giver, we must be willing to sacrificially give. So the point is, is that whenever it comes to the church, God's not asking for 10%. He's asking for you to give to the point that it hurts. 
And for many people, 10% is nothing. I can easily give 10%. But 20% might mean I can't go out to eat next Friday. Or I might not be able to buy that nicer set of clothes or a nicer piece of furniture for my home because I gave 20%. In other words, what God expects of all of us is, is that we give sacrificially, not by constraint, not because we're doing it legally, not because we're meeting some artificial standard of 10%, but we ought to be giving much more. In fact, I'll go as far as to say this. There are some people that 10% would be sacrificial, 8% would be sacrificial. There are some who live on a fixed income, elderly people who are live alone, and they don't have a lot, especially with the way things are today. Prices going up, their income stays the same. They're having a tough time of it. They could give 5%, and it could be everything they could possibly give. But as far as the Bible is concerned, God expects all of us as believers to be responsible in giving to our local assembly, and God expects His church to have the funds necessary for it to do what it's called to do. It shouldn't be a situation where we're needing to beg the church for money because we need to pay the preacher, if you will, or take care of the ministry, or give to the missions. There should be money coming in enough to be able to take care of that. This is something that all of us need to reevaluate in our lives when we come together as believers and we worship together. How are we worshiping God? What is our heart attitude as we come together and worship and are we concerned more about making sure that we honor God and glorify him with our giving our singing our listening our learning from the word of God and living it out those are some important and helpful reminders of what the New Testament church is to be and to do let's pray together okay our father we thank you for this time together it's a special privilege to again be reminded of these important truths in your word Lord, I pray that you would enable this church to be the church that you've called it to be here in Rock Hill, a church that holds to the truth, that preaches the truth, that lives the truth, that has people that love God, love Christ, love his word, are faithful to support, to give, to attend, to worship. And Lord, would you please enable this church to be a great light in this community that needs Christ and needs the truth. This church is the pillar and the ground of the truth here. And I pray, God, that you would use it as such. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hymn number 75, O Love, that will not let me go. Let's sing, stand and sing together. <clears throat> let me go I rest my weary soul in thee I give thee back the life I owe that in thy ocean depths it flow may richer fuller be oh light that falleth all my way. I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart 
restores this borrowed ray, that in thy sunshine's glorious day may brighter, fairer be. O joy that seekest me through pain, I can not close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. That lifteth up my head, I dare not ask to hide from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. Amen. Amen. Excellent sermon. Thank you so much for those reminders. Uh, it, was, it was very well. Um, thank you. So I wanted to make sure a couple things before we end our service. These cards here on the Price family, they're right out here on the welcome table. Make sure you pick one up before you leave. Uh, they have some items to pray for and also that you can have their name, their beautiful family on your refrigerator so we can continually pray for them. Again, thank you so much for bringing your family uh, up here and for sharing uh, your heart and your desire. So we look forward to hearing more updates and we'll continue to pray for you um, as well. So make sure you grab one of these out there. Uh, so I'm going to end with a benediction and it's going to be Romans chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 5 and 6. It was a blessing to worship uh, with uh, you all today, uh, not forsaking the assembly together, <laughs> and uh, to stir one another to love and good deeds. And let's do that in our fellowship time afterwards. Amen. Amen. Romans 15, verse 5 and 6 now says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Be blessed. We'll see you next time.